from the Free Speech Project at Georgetown University, this is Speaking Freely. I'm Sanford Unger. We're here to talk about whistleblowers, freedom of the press, and national security. This is the first in a four-part series exploring these issues. As we'll hear in this series, leaking documents is very different in the digital era when millions of pages can be accessed and leaked anywhere and everywhere using just one small thumb drive. On national security issues, the laws strongly favor the government. I think the question is why? You know, why, why should we deny whistleblowers the protection we give to the press? Whistleblowing is as old as our nation itself. But what about the whistleblowers, the people working inside the government who want to get out the truth about what's really going on, secrets and all? Although the United States has long prided itself on the First Amendment guarantee of free speech and free press, as we'll hear, whistleblowers can't use those guarantees as a defense in national security cases. Even as the colonies were fighting for independence before there was a constitution in which freedom of the press was enshrined, the new nation gave birth to its first whistleblowers. Ten sailors and Marines aboard a frigate off a of Providence Harbor known as the Warren blew the whistle on the commander-in-chief of the Continental Navy. They weren't blowing the whistle on the king they were blowing the whistle on an appointee in a powerful position in the new government. Stephen Cohn is the founder and executive director of the National Whistleblowers Center. Cohn notes that in 1777, just months after the Declaration of Independence was signed, those 10 sailors and Marines accused their commander, the head of the new U.S. Navy, of mistreating and torturing British prisoners, as well as war profiteering. So there was the test. What does liberty mean to this new republic? Liberty meant they needed to report their commander's offenses. So, Cohn says, they chose one man to jump ship, a serious offense by itself, to bring a petition against the commander to the fledgling U.S. Congress in Philadelphia. They believed that Americans had the right to do this. And the petition specifically pointed out that those 10 sailors and Marines were willing to risk their lives for the country. They were fighting in the revolution. But they also insisted on promoting what they called their constitutional right to raise these issues to the new government. Despite the risks they took in reporting their commander's crimes, the men cited a love of country as the motive for their actions. And our founding fathers were tested. How would they react to this? According to Cohn, they behaved admirably, investigating the charges and eventually firing the naval commander, even though he came from a prominent family. And in July of 1778, Congress passed what Stephen Cohn believes is the world's first whistleblower protection law. Our founding fathers, when their lives were on the line, when they were dealing with the very type of issues Congress and the executive must deal with today, they spoke truth. They supported the whistleblower. But more important, they set the precedent for what it takes to have a democratic government that works. 
It was the evening of October 1st, 1969, when I first smuggled several hundred pages of top-secret documents out of my safe at the Rand Corporation. Daniel Ellsberg, a former Pentagon official and later a military analyst for the Rand Corporation, is the pioneer of modern U.S. whistleblowers. Here, he's narrating the documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. He says he was terrified the security guards at Rand would check his bag and his plan would be doomed. My plan was to Xerox the study and reveal the secret history of the Vietnam War to the American people. Of course, Ellsberg wasn't caught that night. He finished his task of copying the papers and eventually... After trying but failing to get them released through Congress, he got them to the New York Times. Hello. General Haig, sir. Ready. Hello. Yes, sir. Hi, Al. How, uh, what about the casualties last week? You got the figure yet? Uh, no, sir. But Sunday, June 13, 1971. The first excerpt from the Pentagon Papers runs in the New York Times. It's just after noon when President Richard Nixon takes a call from his deputy national security advisor, General Alexander Haig. They chat briefly about the upcoming weekly casualty figures from Vietnam. Okay. Nothing else of interest in the world? Yes, sir. Very significant, this uh, goddamn New York Times expose of the most highly classified documents of the war. Oh, that. I see. I didn't read the story, but uh, you mean that, that was leaked out of the Pentagon? The Pentagon Papers were a series of classified reports that exposed the government's darkest secrets about Vietnam and U.S. involvement there, going back to the 1940s. It included more than 7,000 pages of documents and analysis. In 1967, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara had commissioned the study to record the history of America's involvement in Vietnam. Ellsberg was one of three dozen people who worked on the papers, which were finished just a few days before Nixon's inauguration as president in January 1969. Two and a half years later, in June 1971, the New York Times began running excerpts from an analysis of the papers that we just heard Nixon and Haig discussing. After three days of stories, the government got an injunction against the paper. But then the Washington Post began running stories about the papers, which it had also acquired from Ellsberg. The Post was stopped in court, too. The Times and the Post challenged the censorship in the courts, and on June 26, 1971, the Supreme Court held an unprecedented Saturday session to decide whether the press could continue publishing the top-secret documents. Four days later, the court ruled 6-3 to three in favor of the newspapers. By then, Ellsberg had turned himself in. His legal troubles were just beginning. There were no protections for national security whistleblowers, and he was charged with violating the Espionage Act of 1917, as well as conspiracy and theft. He could have spent the rest of his life in prison. National security whistleblowers have almost no protection under statute in the United States. Jamil Jaffer is executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. He notes that leaking national security documents will likely lead to accusations of violating the Espionage Act, the same charges Daniel Ellsberg faced. If you're a whistleblower, you're not permitted to argue to the court that you disclosed information because it showed government misconduct. You can't argue to the court that 
uh, it was in the public interest for you to disclose this information. Those kinds of arguments are off limits, and courts have held over and over again that the Espionage Act makes those arguments off limits. Alberto Moro works on human rights issues at the American Bar Association, directing its Global Rule of Law Initiative. In 2002, he was the Navy Department's general counsel when he faced a dilemma. I oversaw the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS, and one day in November 2002, they came to me and said their people in Guantanamo had heard rumors that detainees were being abused in Guantanamo. Mora says that within two days, he'd identified a troubling memo sent to Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. He decided the one person he needed to speak with was the general counsel of the Army. I called this individual up and said, look, uh, Steve, his name, uh, I'm hearing rumors of detainee abuse in Guantanamo. Do you know anything about this? And if you're an attorney, you ask these kinds of questions all the time, and the answer is always no. But on this occasion, <laughs> Steve said, I know a lot about it. Come on down. And I almost dropped the phone. Moore went to the office of Steve Morello, who showed him documents in which Guantanamo base commanders requested interrogation techniques that Mora considered torture, what later became known as enhanced interrogation techniques. Rumsfeld had approved the request. And then below uh, the approval, he wrote longhand, I stand on my desk from six to eight hours a day. Why are they limited to stand between uh, two and four hours a day or something of the sort? Moritz says he thought the whole thing was a mistake and he could fix it without blowing the whistle. So he threatened to write his own memo on the issue. Rumsfeld soon rescinded the authorization and Mora thought the problem was solved, but it wasn't. I did not receive notice that any abuse was going on anywhere in the system, including Guantanamo, until Abu Ghraib exploded two years later, and it became evident that what I thought was the, the reality, meaning a few rogue guards with a few bad commanders, bad leadership, brain fever on the part of the chain of command within, uh, within the Pentagon, that wasn't the reality. The reality was, of course, a, a metastasis in the decision to apply torture globally. Mora argued strenuously against the torture of prisoners, but his arguments were largely ignored. Torture became an issue in the 2008 presidential campaign. Candidate Barack Obama pledged to end the torture. He also pledged a transparent administration. But, in fact, more whistleblowers were prosecuted during the Obama presidency than in all previous administrations combined. Martin Barron is executive editor of the Washington Post. At the Boston Globe, he had led the Pulitzer Prize-winning team that broke the story of the sexual abuse scandal in the local Catholic Church. That story was featured in the Academy Award-winning movie Spotlight. Barron says today's whistleblowers operate in a chilly legal climate in which it's harder to get government employees to talk to journalists even to explain the context and background of issues. There are so many people in government who are fearful of losing their jobs and not being able to pay their mortgage. People are afraid that they'll be, they'll be prosecuted. They're afraid that even if they make the, now, I, nowadays I believe if they make these arguments internally that in some fashion they'll be blackballed, that if, uh, if you're the squeaky wheel, they're, they're going to get rid of you in some fashion or to, or push you aside. And whistleblowers are in a difficult position since they aren't given the same protections as journalists. If they're caught leaking, they can be prosecuted and go to prison. Journalists, on the other hand, are essentially free to publish those same documents given to them by the whistleblowers. Here's Jamil Jaffer of the Knight First Amendment Institute. I think the question is why? 
you know, why, why should we deny whistleblowers the protection we give to the press in those instances in which the disclosures are in the public interest? Obviously, there's going to be a question in some cases about whether the disclosures were in the public interest or not, and somebody's going to have to make that decision, and it can't be the whistleblower. It's got to be somebody independent of the whistleblower. Edward Snowden, perhaps America's most notorious 21st century leaker of national security secrets, is caught in that very abyss. When he was a U.S. government contractor in 2013, he leaked thousands of secret documents revealing government surveillance programs that he felt went too far. Snowden is now living in exile in Moscow. His supporters note that he never published anything himself, that he provided documents to journalists. He trusted them to make responsible decisions about what to publish. Alberto Mora estimates that more than 60% of whistleblowers suffer professionally. He says some are ostracized, and others are even forced to leave their agencies. He believes in greater protection for whistleblowers. It's a matter of leadership in the, in the agency. If, if the uh, agency leadership um, clearly stands behind the principle that principal whistleblowing is to be encouraged uh, because it makes the agency stronger, healthier, then, then that, that message will get down, down below. Alberto Mora. Next time on Speaking Freely, a look at how we got here and what it means today to be a whistleblower. There is a prodigious loss of income. My family suffered mightily. Please join us for the next edition of Speaking Freely from the Free Speech Project at Georgetown University. And for more information on whistleblowers, and a full range of free speech issues, visit our website at freespeechproject.georgetown.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Sanford Unger. Mm-hmm.